on this Australia Day episode of Comedy Rewind. Is there a better Aussie comedy than The Castle? And could you say it's the greatest Australian film of all time? What makes The Castle so great? Is it just the vibe? All of this and more on Comedy Rewind. 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 Push Rewind. I thought this was a comedy show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to Comedy Rewind. We are powered by Audio Technica as we rewatch the great comedies of the 1990s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me, he's just dug a hole. It's Matt Neal. <laughs> I dug a hole. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm really excited yeah. about this. Me too. This is our Australia Day episode, so happy Australia Day to everybody out there, whether you are Australian or not, it doesn't matter. And uh, Is this one going to confuse a lot of overseas people? That's one of the things that I'd like to discuss later in the podcast. So we are talking about The Castle, which is, I think, widely considered the greatest Australian comedy of all time. Is that a fair... Like, it's a very big call, but is that fair? I think it's fair. I think there's even a quite a, a thing to be made for it being the greatest Australian film of, of yeah. all time, regardless of comedies. There's definitely... Uh, that's a definitely an opinion out there, mm. which I th- I think you could you could argue quite easily that it is the greatest Australian film. Yes, yeah, that is interesting. Now that you bring it up, we did. If we want to like backpedal a lot, our very first podcast together was titled "All Australian Movies Are Terrible." That was the topic. <laughs> yes, but the, we and, didn't have anything to do with that topic really. <laughs> no, that was our friend Sean McCamish on uh, Super Terrific Happy Hour. But probably should introduce you to the listeners who aren't familiar with Matt Neal. Uh, why don't you give us a quick rundown of all the things you do? All the things I do. Okay. There's so many. I'm a reporter. I'm a semi-retired musician. I have a podcast called Can You Believe It, which is a hilarious exploration of the unexplained. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on my second book at the moment. Uh, have I missed anything? That's probably enough things, isn't no, it? it? Podcaster, yeah. author, reporter, musician. There you go. There you go. Film, film reviewer. I'm a film reviewer. Oh, yeah. You're That's a the important film critic, one. Which is probably yes. your most, uh, relevant, most relevant qualification yeah. to this podcast. But Matt, what's the name of your blog? Movies Ate My Life. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find that. And it's uh, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes as well. You can look up Matt Neal on Rotten Tomatoes and find links to all my reviews through there as well. There you go. A Rotten Tomatoes certified movie reviewer. Yep. Grazing us with his presence <laughs> and nuanced opinions. So, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. So, we're talking about The Castle. Uh, 1997, filmed for a budget of 750 grand and made back $10 million, which for an Australian movie, you know, there's a lot of cultural cringe. A lot of Aussies don't back the Australian film industry in a way that makes it, I guess, a significant one, would you say? Compared to TV, for example? Yeah, so like, so making back $10 million at, at the Australian box office uh, for an Australian film is actually is, is really good. That puts it in the top, like, I think now probably top 40 or 50 Australian films of all time uh, in terms of box office. It did come out in what was probably the last great era of Australian films, perhaps, when we had things like Babe and Strictly Ballroom and Priscilla and mm-hmm. you know all these things came out in the 90s and the castle was was probably riding in, a, in an area where we were maybe audiences were a bit more accepting of Australian films uh, 
So it came out in that sort of a in, a in a good time for Australian films. But the fact that it was made so cheaply and so quickly and then did so well at the Aussie box office, totally bombed overseas. I think Miramax mm. bought it and tried to push it out overseas with redubbed, um, you know, lessening some Cultural of the Aussie slang and yeah. stuff. Uh, and it didn't work because it, and that's partly why it's such a great Aussie film. And you can argue it's the best Australian film is because it is so inherently Aussie. And I think that's partly why it worked is because it wasn't trying to be anything else. And I think part of why so many people went and saw it is because it was just, it spoke to so many people on such a, on a, such a weird level and such an Australian level. Yeah, absolutely. And Rob, uh, what was his name? Rob I've, I've written Yes, that's it. He's the director and one of the four writers of this movie and went on to do a bunch of... I guess productions from like Utopia, the TV series, which I think he acts in as well. And I guess some of the, was it Working Dog, the production studio he was part of? Yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Jane Kennedy, um, Tom Gleisner, Rob Sitch, Santo Chilaro, they all came out of Degeneration and they had a show on ABC TV late nights called The Late Show. Uh, it was, it was fantastic. It was cult TV, uh, the kind of thing we probably don't see much anymore but it made their name and then when that wrapped up they were all sort of some of them went their separate ways mick malloy and tony martin went off and did mm-hmm. radio uh tony martin pops up in a small cameo at the very end of uh the castle and then the other core group which became working dog they went to work on this film and then after that they did the dish uh they did any questions for ben which is their third film together but they did a bunch of tv as well um australian viewers would have seen the panel uh, mm-hmm. They have uh, yeah Utopia, Hollow Men. They did Frontline, which was just an amazing, probably one of the great Australian TV shows yeah, of all time. Right. Satirical uh, send up of, of um, tabloid TV shows. So they, they have such a really rich pedigree. And I think a lot of that comes off the back of probably Frontline and, and The Castle, which happened in and around the same kind of time frame. And it really set them, moved them on from being just these wacky undergrad kind of comedy stars on a late night ABC show to like real Australian artists, I think in a lot of ways, but contributing something really intelligent to Australian popular culture at the time. Yeah, definitely. And I think all those guys, whether it's them and like the Kath and Kim crew and and cast and people that you just tend to see pop up, we all recognize them. If we don't know their names, then we definitely would identify them as that Australian actor or actress. <laughs> yeah, I think that like that D-Gen group and like your old school fast forward comedy, mm. full frontal comedy group, all of the people that came out of that is kind of like the Australian equivalent of, equivalent of SNL in a lot of ways. You, yeah. Where you... breeding ground. Yeah, a really great breeding ground for comedy stars who then went on to be great writers, actors, directors and just pop up all over the place uh, doing so many great things. Everyone from, from Sean McAuliffe through to Mick Malloy, like, you know, a really wide breadth of comedy, but yeah. all coming out of the same kind of, uh, yeah, breeding ground. It's interesting you say that because there was kind of a, a 2000s version of that where it was like your Rove McManus, Peter Hellier, the Tripod guys, uh, I guess yeah. Tom Gleeson, like all those guys that came up at the same time as well and attempted to do the same things. I don't know if it's worked out as well as far as film and that kind of thing. Maybe they're not trying to do that. Maybe there's not as much money in it. I don't know. I don't know if there's 
I'm not in touch enough with the current scene to know if there's a group like that now. Maybe things have just changed too much. Yeah, I don't know. I think the way the media has changed, um, there's still, there's a lot of great comedians, Australian comedians out there, and most of them now just focus on doing stand-up and podcasts, I think is a thing. You know, you look at people like yeah. Will Anderson or um, Tom Ballard or Tom Gleason, who is on TV. Um, it's it sort of, it has changed things a little bit, but I think mm. you, you do touch on something interesting now. The thing now is that not as many Australian films get made. It's harder for them to get made and get a wider audience. And I think in the 90s, there was actually, there were more films being made, but also more films getting into cinemas. We weren't getting sort of bombarded as much yeah. by, you know, this many screens is taken up by just a handful of films. There was room. Movies. I was going to say Marvel, <laughs> but it was more, it's more than that even. It's, it's all the other Disney things as well. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing of uh, when the castle came out, there was just more scope for this kind of thing to get a good run so it could mm. foster a good audience and get good word of mouth, which I think is what drove a lot of the castle. Because, I mean, I didn't see this until it came out on DVD, so six months after it came out. So I think, I, and I was in year 12, so it was my last year of high school. And everyone was talking about it and I hadn't seen it at the cinema, but it was so kind of influential in a way that everyone in, I was doing media studies and making my own films at the time. And I know, I just as soon as the first scene of this flashed up and it's Daryl, uh, not Daryl, uh, what's the youngest? I've Stephen just Curry. Stephen Curry. Uh, Dale. Yeah. Dale, Dale Kerrigan comes up and my, my name's Dale Kerrigan. This is my story. And I went, oh my God, we stole this holus bolus for the start of one of the film I made in year 12. Like we just stole that intro because it was just so ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Everyone knew about it. Everyone was talking about it. One of your mates it. ripped it off and you didn't recognize it at the time? No, no. We had all seen The Castle okay. and we and we went, let's start our film like that as well. Yeah, okay. So, you know, just little bits like that. It was, and you know, so I was 17 at the time mm. and we were right into the film. But older people, you know, our parents were right into the film as well. And it kind of, it hit a lot of lot of different demographics which was weird for an aussie film at the time too probably yeah, yeah that's a good point i think my early experiences or first experiences with, with the movie were quite similar where i was watching it either on vhs or dvd and yeah, actually it was probably vhs no i said yeah i was gonna say 97 gee you had no. a dvd player in 97 no definitely it was, um, on, it was on tape VHS. or maybe it could have just been on like tv or something but it was definitely a, a year or two afterwards and by that point, like you said, it was in the lexicon, like all the expressions and sayings and like quotes were just getting thrown around like yeah. everywhere and it, it just, I can't think of an Australian anything that has had that impact apart from like maybe like the if you took like the entirety of Skit House or something like that or fast forward and you know, yeah, it, even still, I don't think it, yeah. it hits as widely. There's probably, I think I wrote down about five or six different phrases mm. that are now just commonplace in the Australian vernacular and they've all come from the castle. And it's, yeah, you're right, there's no other film, even if you look at things like Crocodile Dundee, which is the biggest yeah. Australian film of all time. And aside from, you know, that's not a knife, this is a knife. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, there's not as many great yeah. phrases that kind of come out of it. Um, whereas this has like five or six phrases that are just now part of the Australian lexicon mm. and everyone knows what you mean and they know what yeah. you're referring to. 
If you've written them down, I want to save that for one okay. of the upcoming categories. Yeah, but I do, I do want to get that because it's so true. <laughs> okay, but yeah, that that was my experience with the movie, and I don't know if I was old enough to appreciate the Aussiness of it. Like, I it definitely felt Australian, but I don't think I would appreciate that. That's what made it special at the time. It it just would have felt normal because that's how everybody kind of talks. You all. Everybody knows someone like Daryl Kerrigan and even just re-watching this with Hannah the other day, we were both mentioning different people who he reminded us of. Yeah, yeah. Including it's... her dad. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's just like everyone in this movie feels like someone you know or grew up with, don't you, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a heightened version. I think they definitely mm. darted up a bit and you notice it especially when Bud Tingwell's character comes into things where he is he's, normal. He, he's he's like acting as a proper actor and everyone else is just kind of like just dialing everything up a little bit yeah. and just kind of going <laughs> over the top and then when as soon as bud comes in who's one of the greatest great australian actors of all time when he comes in you sort of get this idea you suddenly realize whoa everyone was just really amping it up mm. but i think but you're right especially growing up in the country i think yes it's they are really hitting a lot of kind of Aussie country stereotypes, uh, you know, not so, even though they, they live in Melbourne, they live very, well, what was the outskirts of Melbourne then, Coolaroo, which is now like the edge of Melbourne is way beyond that now. Hmm. But, you know, they are very much fringe dwelling on Melbourne. They are still kind of where the country meets the city in a lot yeah. of ways. And they do feel like real, real country people. In a, yeah, in, maybe in a slightly tweaked over over the top version but definitely not far off the mark that's funny so i looked up on rotten tomatoes i don't know if these reviews are of the time or kind of like since then you probably understand how that works better than i do but do you have a guess as to how popular this is on there i think i looked it up yesterday <laughs> yesterday uh, I do you remember then uh how, it was it got a really good rap at the time like um it got really good reviews at the time yeah uh and I think, so on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's like 86% yes, or something. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, and some of those might be sort of done, uh, you know, after the fact. Mm. W- one interesting one um, on the SBS movie show, uh, Margaret and David, um, two legendary Australian film reviewers. Margaret loved it. And David, quite famously now, just hated on the film. <laughs> but he's since walked that back. And I think that was his um, Matrix Revolutions moment. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's a really deep throwback, but yeah. um, he has since acknowledged that he was probably wrong and took the film the wrong way and now agrees that it is a, an Australian classic. But he actually kind of slated it a bit at the time as being mm. sort of cheesy and talking down to people, kind of maybe, I think he thought it was a little bit mean-spirited maybe or just a bit daft uh, and has since yeah. realised that he wasn't right. Um, I think it might have gone over his head if that was what he thought at the time, definitely. I think so. I'd have to dig yeah. out his his full review but he definitely um it the humor in it and the message of it i think missed the mark with him but yeah, he right. has since retracted that so mm, as we all so do from time to time I, i'm interested as we mentioned before whether this is purely something for australians to enjoy and you referenced the fact that it bombed overseas but i've got a couple tidbits here that indicate that there is kind of an audience for it elsewhere so infamous Film critic Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, calling it a comic treasure, comparing it to The Full Monty, which came out probably just 
previous C- to that. A couple of years before, I think, yeah. Yeah, and then in uh, in 2011, Time Out London named it the 25th greatest comedy film of all time. So that, that's huge praise. I don't know what Time Out London is. Maybe it's, it's a, a London publication full of expats from australia <laughs> it's but. it's a it's a pretty big publication it, that is actually quite a, a a notch in the belt that one yeah um it did really well in new zealand as well um because we have very similar yeah. um, senses of humor uh and you know kiwi films tra- travel really well over here and vice versa but um i i guess the british are closer to us in a lot of ways mm. and, our, and, and in humor true so it probably worked a little bit over the, better over there it's a, like, how would you market this film in America? I mean, it, uh, they redubbed a lot of it. They re, they changed a lot of things in it. Um, you know, the the humor and a lot of lines as much as they could. But I don't. Yeah. I, I can. I can't ever see this appealing to an American audience. I think in a post Steve Irwin world, there might be a bit more interest in Australia generally as a culture and as a personality, like. The crazy Aussies, you know, you hear people talk about us in that way and the likes of Hugh Jackman and, you know, the Hemsworths and whoever else have kind of opened a lot of people to the personalities and quirks of Aussie humor, I think. And I just think, like, I've got a lot of friends in the States and they, I can imagine those people in particular, the ones that have an interest in Australianisms and think everything that we say is hilarious they might watch this and absolutely love it. I think that they probably would, even if they didn't understand all the references. <laughs> but if not, it's just like, wh- who are these people? What are they talking about? I don't understand anything. <laughs> See, I, I think a lot of the Australian culture and Australianisms that, that Americans see through the likes of Hugh Jackman and and uh, you know Hemsworth's Eric Banner, maybe, who's in this, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think they see kind of a... a a dialed down version of it. Mm. Like I think the castle is just, is unapologetically Australian. It was made never intending to be sort of seen by anyone else. So it never tries to hide the Aussie sense of humor or any of the references to things, you know, even stuff that's going on in the background. Um, You know, the fact that they race greyhounds, like that's such a really Aussie (laughs) strange thing. And it's kind of almost seen as like a really lowbrow Aussie thing too, you know? Um, So these kind of elements to it make you go, this was never going to work in an American market. And if people are watching it, um, they're watching it kind of with that, for for that kitsch factor, because they, Mm. you know, have some vague interest in Australian stuff. And this is about as Australian as it gets without being watered down in any way. Yeah, that that sounds about right to me. So, Matt, to set the scene, it's 1997. You're in year, I think you said year 11 or 12, was it? Yeah, I was in year 11 in 97 and I saw this yeah. on VHS in 90, yes. <laughs> early 98. Okay, so April 1997, what was the number one song on the ARIA charts? Oh, Jesus. I'd stopped listening to whatever was on the ARIA charts at this point. Um, too cool. Well, I cool. discovered Triple J at this point. So, um, I could tell you what was uh, number one of the hottest 100 of 1997 okay. <laughs> for Triple J. I think it was Buy Me a Pony, wasn't it? By Spiderbait. Um, there might be some crossover with this tune, I think. Uh, I'm it? sure it would have been in the hottest 100. It would have been in the hottest 100? Yeah, I reckon. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Um is it Powderfinger? No. I'll just no. tell you. 
It's uh, Go on. Do- it's Don't Speak by No Doubt. No, see, that didn't make it into the Hottest 100. Oh. I wrote, a, a, I've got a go. whole blog on this of the top 100 <laughs> songs that never made it into Triple J's Hottest 100. Don't Speak, we put in our top 10 yeah. uh, as a surprising thing that it didn't get in because that's an amazing go. song. I am surprised. Mm. Well, No Doubt mm. was getting played on Triple J, so yeah. they didn't, but they stopped at that song for some reason. There you go. And the number one sound, uh, album at the time was the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. So. Baz Luhrmann, our Baz. See, yeah. Aussie film. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, what have you done for me lately? We'll just go through a few of the uh, actors who are still kind of working, I guess, because not everyone is a household name from the cast. We've got Michael Caton, who was the starring role of the film. He's recently done a couple of Underbelly episodes. I'm not sure what off-spin season Underbelly's up to now, but he's done a couple of them. He was in The Last Cab to Darwin a few years ago. Yeah, that was kind of his last big prominent role, I think, yeah. like especially in film yep. terms, because that did all right 70s. at the box office. He's in his 70s now, so he's getting on a bit. But he hasn't really had much of a film career. He did a few movies after The Castle, but I think he's mainly stuck to, to TV. And he had the, all those years on, like, Packed to the Rafters as well. Yeah, and he got... he This did kind of kick him on a little bit, where he did a film with Paul Hogan, I think, called Strange Bedfellows, yep. which was then remade in America as I now pronounce you... Uh, something Chuck in... and Larry Chuck and Larry thank you was, was it remade or did they steal it and then he got upset with with those guys or something like that happened there was some dispute between Paul Hogan and yeah and Adam Sandler yeah because <laughs> uh, I think so Michael Caton did The Animal with Rob Schneider in 2001 he did and I think that's where he must have told Rob Schneider about the movie and then obviously Rob and Adam Sandler are great mates and Rob Schneider played an Asian man in I uh, now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. So oh, it was a different time. If, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that's all complicated. Yeah, but so there you go. There's Michael Caton's post-castle career. Yeah. That, the animal with Rob Schneider and then and uh, <laughs> Strange Bedfellows. That's about it. That's it. Yeah, uh, Stephen Curry, who is... It's really hard not to say Stephen Curry because of the NBA superstar. It's <laughs> yeah. probably ruined every Google search for Stephen Curry. You have to write Stephen Curry actor to find, to find him. But uh, Mr. Black is a TV show that he's just done uh, with Adam Zarr, I think, from... Oh, uh, yeah, from... From uh, Wilfred. Wilfred. Wilfred, yeah. yeah, love that dude. And he's worked pretty consistently in TV ever since this movie and done a couple of sprinklings of Australian film. Nothing in the last couple of years. No, he was in The Cup, which yep. uh, where he played Damien Oliver, which is a terrible film with an amazing story. <laughs> um, and he actually, he, he gave it, a, he had a, a really good crack at that. He was he was pretty good in that. Um, and I feel like if that film had been good, that really could have launched him even further. He's, he's one mm. of those guys that he pops up in a lot of stuff. He's one of those recognisable faces, like you said before. Um, yeah, Because he definitely. is... A, a decent actor and, and a good comedy actor as well. Yeah, he's a great comedic talent, especially in this film. We'll talk about that later. But uh, the only other one I wanted to talk about was Eric Banner because it's a cameo basically, but he's by and large easily the biggest star in this film because of what he's done since this. Uh, he's had an amazing career. Like This is I, his I, first, I, first film role too, I think. It is, yeah, it's his very first film. He'd only done the sketch comedies before this that I guess was his that was his audition to get onto the show, being known to those people through playing over-the-top characters. And he is great in this movie, but he 
it's amazing how well he's done out of this. Like before you knew it, he was like Bruce Banner and he was in Munich with, you know, working with the best directors in the world. And Well, it wasn't long after this that he was Chopper. And that was the one that really yes, yeah. made so his that was name. only three years later between the releases. And then like Black Hawk Down was really quick after that. And from there, he just became like a guy you could go to as, as like kind of a, a grisly kind of action dude. Yeah, with a bad American accent. <laughs> Do you think he, he's... I think his star is has waned significantly in the last few years. Um, yeah. Yeah, think- so I've got... So we're talking about what they've done for us lately. He was in The Forgiven, which was a British film with Forrest Whitaker. I don't know anything about it. That came out, I think, two years ago. He did a King Arthur movie, which is somewhat forgettable. Oh, the that's, fact that is I've that forgotten the, about it. the Guy Ritchie one? Yeah, that must be it. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. It is mm. really bad. Um, he was in another film called uh, Closed Circuit, I think, which didn't get a very wide release because it's not great. But that right. seems to have been the pattern of late that he just keeps popping up and being, yeah. you know, w- one of the better things in a lot of really <laughs> films. Okay. I think more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I saw him in, as far as film that I enjoyed, was Foreign Correspondence with Ricky Gervais, which was a comedy. Oh, and yeah. That- I don't know if that got a cinematic release even or if it was a straight-to-Netflix type deal. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it was very well received uh, from what I remember. I, have, I haven't seen that either, but um, it, uh, I don't remember that getting great reviews. Mm. Well, again, I liked it, Matt. I, I, it, well, again, I mean, uh, from what I understand, he was you know, the good thing and possibly not, yeah. a, not a good film was my sure. read of, reading of it anyway. Yeah, and then just last year, he was the main role in Dirty John, which is a... Uh, it was. I watched it on Netflix, but it's a series about a con artist based off a podcast. Oh, that's the yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really great story. The podcast is better than the TV show, but I thought he did a good job. So yeah. good on he, you. He Eric. is a great actor, and he yeah. uh, he does great comedy. Uh, he pops up. Is it Funny People? The Adam Sandler movie. Yes, he's great in that, and he's amazing. And <laughs> playing an Aussie. Yeah, and everyone kind of looked at that film and went, oh one he's australian and he's really funny it's like well in australia we know that because that's where he started he started as a comedy actor and he's he is really funny in the castle as well um just the way he delivers his lines he's so earnest you know 24 hours a day yeah yeah. i've lost all faith in in the justice system (laughs) you know he just he's just so earnest in everything he does and it's great yeah and it's that presence of like the greek like Australian as well, which is mate, it's, it's so Australian in and of itself too. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the um, yeah, and you know, having the you know, uh, what he has a Lebanese neighbour. Uh, he makes a couple of jokes at the expense of the Greeks early on, yeah. but he it, it is such an such a Melbourne thing too. Yeah. Like you know, Melbourne was it's the Greek capital outside of Athens. Exactly. For the whole world. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're up to the categories. Matt, what is the most 90s moment of the castle? Now, I found this really difficult because <laughs> it's everything about it is so 80s. Like, and it's this kind of this thing that Australia has where it's just really slow on the uptake of everything, or it used to be anyway, you know, uh, whether it be, you know, trends in trends in technology, in, in music, in, in fashion, and it, everything about 
this film looks kind of 80s to the point where I was like, well, the only 90s thing I can think of is something that's actually a hangover from the 80s is when they're sitting there and watching Hey Hey It's Saturday. Yeah. And that's their, like, their go-to family moment around the TV. They're watching the show that was massive only in the 80s and 90s. Um, mm. And for the American version, they actually redubbed that they were watching Funniest Home Videos. Yeah. Because um, it was just a bit more, you know, it traveled a bit better. But that's the only thing in it that is actually really 90s. Otherwise, this is kind of lost in, locked in this time capsule of where this could happen any point from, I think... 1981 through to about 2002 i reckon if you said that this film came out anywhere in that time period people would go oh yeah well that makes sense yeah there's nothing to really date it i feel like it's at the tail end of getting away with all that 80s stuff but it's a good point you bring up and i was going to mention it as well it reminded me of a uh, an interview I, I read with ricky gervais when he made a, a drama called cemetery junction which was set in the 70s i think and he talked about how they wanted it to be realistic and in real life people were often wearing the clothes that were trendy 10 years ago because yeah. that's what happens you buy clothes and you wear them and then you buy new clothes when they wear out i guess if if you're not someone that is you know if you're not fashion on, conscious yeah, keeping up with the trend yeah. yeah and so naturally uh, and especially if you're maybe a bit daggy, like these people are portrayed to be, you're not going to be concerned with what's in vogue at the moment. You're going to, like even myself being someone that went to high school in the 2000s, some of the things that I wear and own are still like, they were cool back then. And I, I just still like them. <laughs> including I, still, the music I listen to. I've still got shirts that I had from the nineties. They weren't cool then. They're definitely yeah. still not cool now, but <laughs> you're totally right. And that's what, but that says a lot about these characters. And the yeah. reason they, they dress so at is because they're not keeping up with trends. They don't care. Yeah. They, they found a, 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 a portion of time, a period of time where they kind of felt comfortable with the style and that's what they've stuck yeah. with. And that's what a lot of people do in their lives. You know, you, yeah. they just stick with what they felt cool with in that when they last felt cool. And that's like their early twenties probably, you know, and they just keep wearing that stuff. And Absolutely. You know, that's, and I think that's says a lot about this family says a lot about the characters and it says a lot about Australia too, that they look that way is because they're not concerned with the trends. They just mm. keep it on with, what was what is you know still they can still wear it it's not worn out uh they felt comfortable wearing it it's probably worn in so they feel really comfortable and still <laughs> and you know it gives the whole film a look that means it could have been made 10 years earlier yeah the the haircuts are definitely oh so, 80s 90s so, <laughs> so 80s. bad they're terrible Espe like the women's haircuts are super early 90s like really early 90s to yeah me. especially sophie lee who who was really big back then um i think she hosted like a kids tv show right for a bit as well That's as Tracy, being the hairdresser yeah and she's the hairdresser and she has the worst haircut out of any yeah. of them which is what uh, i know Steve's a lot of, is pretty bad oh uh, yeah true yeah <laughs> but uh it's, That's the 90s it's, thing like i can yeah it's definitely a haircut that uh was on point back in like yeah 10 years earlier mm. Yeah, I think we agree on all of that. <laughs> yes. Like all of the, the aesthetic of their house, like the wallpapers and like the kitchen and the light fittings and artworks that... Yeah, all the kitschy little things everywhere. Yeah. I mean, like, is there anything in this that makes you think it's in the 90s? Like, could, <laughs> I, I was looking through it and I could... Aside from some of the designs of the cars in the scenes that are shot in Brunswick, 
otherwise, there's nothing in it that makes me go, oh, that's definitely the 90s. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think now that you say it. And I mean, is Eric Banner's Eric Banner's character's dressed kind of 90s, isn't he? He's got like the trackies and... That still feels like... Yeah. I, like the Beastie Boys were getting around in that kind of gear in the 80s. True. I mean, he he referenced Jumanji and Twister, which oh yes, are two, two films that have, <laughs> that really date it to that time. It's, it's the, fantastic. Yeah, there you go. That's the only thing. There was I, I like talking about technology in this section, and the only real tech that you see is when uh, they're at the the law office. Is it Darren? The Dennis. Dennis. Dennis Denudo. Yeah. Yeah, and he's talking into an analog dictaphone. You know, he's re- recording what he wants to type. He puts it down puts the headphones in and types it up on an actual typewriter. Like you said, I don't even think anyone would be doing that in the 90s. <laughs> Unless yeah. it was like the way that a document had to be presented to court was via a typewriter instead of a word processor. I don't know. No, I think that's also showing that um, Dennis Denudo, like everyone in this, is a bit <laughs> behind the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. It's funny. I didn't even I didn't even think twice about that. But he, he actually pulls out one of those little mini cassettes out of his yeah. dictaphone and then puts I've it into one. another. I've got one of those. <laughs> yeah, he puts it into another tape player, mm, just so yeah. he can hear My it back. My dad used to use those as a as a journal, and I've inherited it. But yeah, good luck finding a tape for it. No, that belongs in a museum. It does. <laughs> so most iconic scene, I think it has to be the opening when they introduce every character basically and who they are. It's hard to call it one scene because it's kind of uh, not quite a montage. Well, but it's, yeah, it's kind of an introductory it, montage, isn't it? Yeah, because I yeah, it's hard to go past that because, like you were referring to earlier, like almost every one of those classic quotes that you probably wrote down comes in that first like five minutes. A fair whack of them, yeah, because they yeah, they kind of like uh, they catch phrases through a lot yeah. of it. But I, I want to roll through those quotes now. Okay, <laughs> so uh, it's going in the pool room. Yep, straight to the pool room. Straight to the pool room. If That's say in the intro. If you say that to anyone, they know what that means. Um, and for those who don't know, it means it's it, that you treasure it so highly, it mm. gets a special place in the house. Um, it's about the vibe. It's about Marbo. I, mm. okay. We still we still use that one a lot in the office at work. <laughs> um, it's, the vibe of it. It's about the vibe and it's about Marbo. And, you know, the, the character saying that doesn't fully understand the ramifications of what the Marbo uh, case meant in Australia to Indigenous people. It's a very kind of probably maybe a casual racism thing or just an ignorance thing. Okay. But just using something, saying something is about the vibe. It's about Marbo. is just a way of saying, I can't quite drill down what it is about this, but it, it's it's something. Um, what else? How's the serenity? Hmm. Um, because yeah. he just mentioned Serenity, Bonnie Doon, yeah, all the way in Bonnie Doon. Um, tell him he's dreaming. Yeah, um, that's from the intro as well. Yeah. Yep. And what was the other one? Uh, oh, this one comes towards the end, but um, suffering your jocks, which it's I don't think one. the the castle the castle didn't coin that one, but okay. it definitely popularized it. I think but, it's one yeah. I remember from the trailer actually. Now that you mention it. Mm. But suffering your jocks, it's just such a great turn of phrase. I love it. Do I need to explain what that means to the Americans? (laughs) Undies? Suffering your underwear? Your briefs? Anyway, the the one that you didn't hit on that was another from the intro sequence was, what do you call this? Uh, As his wife's presenting a very basic cooked meal. 
Yeah. What do you call this? It's chicken, yeah. love. <laughs> what do you call ice this? Cream. It's ice cream. <laughs> yeah, well, it's what you do with it. Yeah. And then he, he tells her, you could sell that. And I don't know if he repeats that later, but it's it, it gets me gets me tickled. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> you should open a shop. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. I just love his earnestness. I mean, um, Daryl Kerrigan as a character is a really well-written character because he, uh, he has, he has his flaws. He has his limitations and he is mm-hmm. kind of aware of them, but he just has the biggest heart. He has n- not a single bone of malice in his body. Even when he's being casually racist, he is still, uh, he is he, still just, he's honest and, and well-meaning all the way through. And he doesn't, uh, have the intelligence to fully articulate what it is that everything that he's fighting for means mm. until the end of the film when he when he actually just lays it all out and then the QC basically repeats his own Daryl's own yeah. words and then you you realize that it, it is such it, he is a simple man of simple means but uh, he has such a beautiful spirit about him that it just it carries him through as a really great character, I think. And, and he has his flaws as well, but it's just, he's just such a beautifully written character and such a, you know, he's hilarious as well, but he has yeah. a great heart to him, which I think is really important. Yeah. He's very much a like count your blessings type of personality where it's the simple things that he enjoys. And yeah, he, he's the eternal he, he optimist. Marved, sorry. He's the eternal optimist. Yeah, he, and he marvels at the power lines as man's ability to generate electricity. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not not as something that potentially gives you cancer, which they don't, by the way. But uh, you know, a lot of people thought that, but he just sees it as as a great thing. Yeah, and it's almost like an idyllic sense of what an average Aussie is as well. That that like. You know, you'd take the shirt off your back for someone, you'd give everyone a fair go, you just want a fair go. I think that would resonate with a lot of people over here. Yeah. And I mean, even when he's lining up his court case, uh, for he offers to pay for his neighbor because he knows his yeah. neighbor can't do it. He offers for his neighbor to come and live with him when he knows he's going to lose his house. And that all they can afford is a two-bedroom flat and he still offers for his neighbor to come and live with this family of four. Mm. Like, it, it just... It's just, it's just like, and that's, and that is Aussie, the Aussie spirit. That's the Aussie battler spirit that we champion so highly, you know, that's what it is. And Daryl Kerrigan exemplifies that in so many ways. This is such a great Australia Day podcast. Oh, it's, it's Aussie as. (laughs) Uh, Did you have something different for most iconic scene? Uh, Yeah, I really struggled to find one. Um, I think for me, it's the courtroom scenes. I think yep. they're the things that they were the f- the few bits that are really stuck in my head because um, I haven't seen this since it came out. So, oh, wow. or since I since I watched it in '98, that's but, a long time between drinks. Yeah, but I knew so much of it. Like I and it, d- it didn't surprise me. There was nothing that I could forgotten as soon as I watched it. It was like I was there again watching mm-hmm. it in '98. But the, n- thinking before watching it again, I'm like, there's there's no great iconic scene to me except maybe the courtroom stuff, I think, because that's when it has some great, it has great laughs, but also has, you know, the big final triumph is there. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're, for me, they're the iconic scenes. And the Bonnie Doon stuff is, yeah. <laughs> but I like, I feel like so much of that could just be cut out. 
I think that's like a real diversion in the film that is, mm. it builds character that we've already yeah. kind of established early in the film through the opening montage and through everything that's going on. The only point, the only purpose that the Bonnie Doon stuff serves is to further build character. It doesn't push the plot along at all. So You're right, yeah. And they can is, still even reference it without going there. But I think it's it's just there for the comedy, really. Like it, I, it, I think so. It, yeah, because it is like there's so many laughs in that section to me. I think like when they're sitting there and the bug zapper is going off tap and he's like, <laughs> "Not a noise," or he's like, "Yeah, <laughs> listen to that silence or whatever yeah. it is." Yeah, and the bug zapper is just nuts. Yeah, it's, it's got so many really good bits. <laughs> You've lost it at that, haven't you? That's correct. That's just so funny. I uh, had to rewind it because I kind of didn't notice the joke, and I was like, "You have to watch this again." It's so funny. Uh, How's the serenity? Yeah, yeah, but I feel like that's a really icon- the whole Bonnie Doon bit is really iconic. Um, and the song, yeah, <laughs> but it's but it's 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 kind of irrelevant, and I, yeah. but I kind of like it. So I, that's that to me is one of the iconic bits. I, I can't think of anything else except the bit where they rip the gate off. Um, yeah, it's cool. using the tow truck is pretty cool. It's the only one big like action set piece in the whole film, mm. <laughs> and I kind of like that just because that's as big as they went in terms of. Oh, the fishing? You, an actioning thing. Well, yeah, the, Catching know, driving, the the boat, driving the boat around, but yeah, I don't know. The, the one other scene that I had for most iconic was the land valuation when he's taking the guy around the house and pointing out all the mm. like tidbits that he's added on, like fake chimney, <laughs> fake like... <laughs> fake lattice work on yeah. the veranda. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it ends with like telling him that there's nothing wrong with the soil and then do you know anything about lead? yeah what do you know about lead that's like <laughs> my favorite line in the whole thing yeah no nah, we've had this all tested it's fine what do you know about lead it see for me i think that what is iconic is not the scenes per se it's those lines we were talking about yeah. before those catchphrases that have come out of it and that mm. is the thing that people remember about the film less than the the scenes themselves i think you know sure, you, you, sure. you as much as that opening montage that introduces everyone is really iconic people don't remember all the bits of that except i always remembered the pool table that, that he put himself that's got this the yeah. killer lean on it um that you know but i think it's i think it's the lines that are iconic really yeah yeah uh, what are you going to do with jousting sticks <laughs> jousting sticks. it's just that is just a great. it is great comedy writing like what's the most obtuse thing you could think of yeah. that you would definitely see in the trading post um, like a pulpit <laughs> yeah oh, that's yeah a pulpit but I know people who have bought out of the trading post not pulpits but pews right you know, like so that Which to me church, just, yeah. you know if you can buy a pew you can buy a pulpit but jousting Absolutely. sticks that's just great <laughs> Uh, so yeah. what holds up the best? And I'm I'm thinking maybe you've said the writing a few times. Is that your mm. answer? Uh, what holds up the best, I think, is is the vibe, the marbo, mm. the whole <laughs> vibe of it, the vibe of it. I think the 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 Australianness of it just has not diminished mm. at all. It's still as relevant as it was, and that partly, predominantly, I think, is down to the writing, but also down to the approach they took to make the film because it looks like a student film. Like it, it. There's yeah. nothing glitzy or, or glamorous about it all, and you know it was filmed in eleven days, and it looks it. <laughs> yeah. You know they've they've written it down to go. Okay, we have as few sets as possible. We've got as few out and about 
shots as we need as possible. You know, they've written it with the intention of being able to be just short, fast and nasty to shoot it. And they've done that. And I think that's part of what holds, uh, why it holds up so well mm. is because it hasn't dated in any way because they weren't doing anything that stylistically or di- directorially that dated it. So just the style of it and the writing of it is what holds it up, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, it makes it work so well. Yeah, no, that's true. I think casting Eric Banner has held up really well considering <laughs> he's gone on to do so much. Yeah. And I wonder if there's been any like mega Eric Banner fans that have just gone back and watched this to see, you know, his whole filmography. And what's this? Uh, the Castle. That sounds cool. I really hope they've <laughs> gone back to see Poida from uh, yeah. Full Frontal more than anything. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. the deep, uh, the deep got- Eric Banner dive you really need to take. And then I also had Stephen Curry's voiceover. Like he, he nails it. Like he does it. He does it so well. All the inflections are so great. And it's so Aussie, the way that he, he just does it. it. It works really well. I have real issues with, with voiceovers. They have to really serve a purpose. And I think they maybe overuse his voiceover in it to the point where the, the jokes kind of become a little bit too obvious where Stephen Curry will narrate a bit and then a and character then will, it, will yeah. say it immediately after. And I think they leaned a little too heavy on that. But... Um, it does add a really just nice charm to it all because he's such a dimwit. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just so endearing and kind of beautiful. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, I, I think that still holds up pretty well. Yeah. It's kind of breaking the fourth wall a bit. Is it fourth wall or third wall? Fourth wall. Um, fourth wall, yeah. Because yeah, he says, no, like, this is my story. And he's like looking at the camera. It's at the start and it's at the end. The one at the end, I didn't think they needed at all, but... What yeah, I think because it only does it for those two seconds that bookend the film. Yeah. I don't think it's actually it's not it's not really breaking the fourth wall. And if he had a turn to camera and done it, you know, in the middle, but I think it's just that that's just serving the same purpose as narration. It's, you, sure. So you you know who he is when he's talking. I, yeah, no, I don't. Like I don't Shawshank think, Redemption. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly like Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> It was the first movie that came to my mind with the uh, narration. Anyway, what holds up the worst? And you mentioned like the low budget. I, I had the fidelity of it. Like you can see this and instantly, you know, it was a cheap movie. Like there was movies coming out at the same time in the States, for example, you know, Chasing Amy, not an expensive movie, but just filmed on a better camera very clearly. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. I mean... It doesn't really a... work against it. It's just something that as soon as you see it, you know that it's old and it, it's a bit more jarring now, especially if you don't watch... Like, it looks like the cameras they used back then to film TV shows, basically, like soap operas and stuff. Which I suspect it was. I don't. Yeah. I, I assume it was filmed on film, but I sus- from looking at it, I suspect it was just filmed with really high-end TV cameras. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the the lo-fi aesthetic was is very is is very '90s. Um, I think it can get away with it. There are a lot of grungy-looking films, like you know, in terms of uh, just they have that lo-fi kind of quality to them. I mean, look at you mentioned Chasing Amy, but look at Clerks. I mean, Clerks looks, you know, they they shot it in black and white. I think just to kind of well, yeah, and they shot it in black and white just to hide the fact that it would have looked even if it was in color. 
Mm. You know, so they, they couldn't get consistent lighting in the shop if they did it in color. Yeah, but it, and that, so yeah, they're using it to to smooth over the edges. But imagine yeah. clerks if, clerks in color would have looked really bad. I think yeah. <laughs> you know they made it for like thirty grand or something. But you got to think about yeah. like like after this film came out, Blair Witch Project came out. Like the, Blair Witch was like two years after the Castle. Mm. There's a low most lo-fi film you can possibly think of. But you know, indie filmmakers were running around with whatever cameras they could then, and just shooting whatever they whatever it was they wanted to make. I think, yeah, it 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 dates it the look of the film, but the film, like as we said before, the costumes and everything dated anyway. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Watch films from I, I watch a lot of films from like I watch silent films. I watch films from the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties. Nerd, and they, you know, they look as they do of the time. But I, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not saying I look past it a lot, but you just you kind of take <laughs> things in the context of when they're made. I think is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Makes sense. It's funny that like literally our phones would make a better shot than these ones. Well, yeah, but we <laughs> we live in extraordinary times. Really, it's amazing. It is. Yeah. The only other thing I had holding up badly was uh, it's a, a pre-Port Arthur massacre moment with pointing the rifle at the dude that comes knocking on the door. Mm. Like, oh, that wouldn't happen now. <laughs> you don't. Well, ha- you can't access a gun like that in a suburban area. Definitely. Well, he said he bought it in the trading post, um, which, yeah, I don't think you can buy <laughs> yeah. firearms through the trading post anymore. Um, yeah, that's probably one thing that has, has really dated. I mean, aside from things like the telephones in it and the, the office yeah. equipment stuff. But, yeah, I don't know. I didn't think twice about that. Probably because I watch so much American stuff that, that but people just mm. pull guns all the time. And it's like, oh, yeah. Someone in an Australian movie pulls a gun. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Because yeah. <laughs> we don't have guns. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like when was Port Arthur like 99 two years later or was it that year later that year I, f- I feel like all the 20th anniversary stuff was last year so right la- last year or the year before so it's either 98 or 99 yeah mm. it does make for a great moment where Daryl goes straight to uh, how much did you get it for yeah yeah he's, he's instantly <laughs> less concerned about the fact he's got a gun as the, whether he got a bargain yeah <laughs> uh did you have anything for that one? Well, it just kind of flows into the next thing of, of who would be yeah, offended. Who would be the most offended? <laughs> now, and that's that's probably the casual racism of it is. I mean, it's yeah. only he, he says the word wogs and he talk he makes a sort of vaguely pejorative statement towards Greeks. But, he does, and that's so Aussie in itself. <laughs> casual yeah. racism. Australians are just mad for casual racism. Um, but you know, it's not. It, it's in character. It, it, it's of its time. And it's not done with any malice. Um, so I think that's the only part of it that sort of sits a little mm. weird. I mean, there's one, the one thing that really dates it um, is, is that kind of speech, but also, you know, like the gender roles in the film as well, you know, like things like that have, have mm. probably, probably date the film more than anything else of it. I think. Yeah. I think they, they almost, put a lampshade on that to use the term because she like the mum asks the daughter are you gonna have kids and she says oh no i'm focusing on my career don't want to have any kids till i'm 23 and the mum says oh times have changed (laughs) yeah 23 (laughs) yeah it's yeah and that's it's very much of its time i mean that's the thing about it like i don't it's hard to be offended i've i've they're the only moments in that we kind of go well 
it's not even offensive. I it's mean, not. I mean, that's just a reality as well. Like a lot of people mm. live that life for whatever reason. Like that's the way that they're happy to be. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had I had the same thing. I had uh, the accurate portrayal of casual Aussie racism that Aussies are guilty of. So yeah, and it's, it's totally, totally accurate. It's still how people are. Like, there's often no malice in it, but it's just there, and it's it's a an ignorance more than anything else for most people. There's obviously a lot of outward, uh, overt racists, but yeah, yeah. And I I think back to when I was growing up, and you know, in the country, it was probably even heightened as well. But you know, we had people friends whether were Dutch or that were Greek. Um, you know, that lived up the road, they played in the same cricket club, they run the fish and chip shop, whatever. And everyone would say some kind of, you know, derogatory kind of thing to them, but they loved that person that everyone in the community loved those people. Mm. But it was still the Australian thing to just kind of drop in the word wog every so often as like, or, yeah. you know, like it was no big thing. And the, you know, and those people that, that were in the community that were on the other end of it were like, they said it too and they didn't care. They were just kind of embraced it in a way. And it was part of them, mm. part of their integration in Australia in this weird kind of hazing sort of way. But they just lapped it up and just ran with it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like it was only a couple of years ago that I even realized that wog was a word that we're not meant to use anymore, I yeah. guess. Because yeah. I grew up with, greek friends and they definitely referred to themselves as wogs or said like you know it's a they used it as an adjective they used it as a noun uh it was and there was obviously that movie the wog boy and i was yeah i was just gonna say that another you know australian comedy yeah and i was just like okay that's it's it's like saying aussie or pom or you know wog yeah and i just thought that's how it was and then i heard someone talk about it being offensive and i was like oh maybe things have changed over the decades but yeah it's it's uh it's one of those things i guess yeah it, it's almost like it was sort of reclaimed in a way kind of like black people reclaimed the n-word mm-hmm. or uh gay people reclaimed like a lot of a lot of terms like queer and all these kind of things sure um i feel like a lot of the greek and italian communities in australia just embraced it and, and took it and ran with it as like a badge of honor and it reclaimed it in their own kind of way as well. Interesting. I'll just not use it and just in case. That's that's my <laughs> yeah, Err on the side of caution. Yeah. Because I feel like it was like from my young pragmatic mind, it was a uh, like a useful word because it was like a catch-all for like that whole Mediterranean area. It wasn't like you're specifically from this country. It was like, yeah, yeah anyway. Which comes that's that's a kind of a, a of ignorance in there as well. Yeah. Like, I don't well, know. I was, if, I was, yeah, I was a child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, but I'm, uh, yeah, but uh, I think the grown-ups did it too. So it's okay. Yeah, I'm not excusing it in any way. I'm just explaining <laughs> it. So does the castle pass the internet relevancy test? I don't think we see enough of it in memes and gifs and stuff for that to be a thing. Would you agree? No, it's cultural cachet has come in its the way it's influenced the Australian lexicon. I think that's yes. its big influence. But I did when you sent me these questions, I did Google the castle gifts and found <laughs> uh, a heap of really great ones that I'm now going to start using. <laughs> so okay. they're out there. They're definitely out there. There's a lot of you know it's going straight to the pool room. Um, 
My favorite one is Farouk's thumbs up in the courtroom when he oh, thinks really? that, that yeah he's uh, sitting there in his in his tux with his bow tie. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a Bonnie Doon one. Like they they are out there. Some okay. dedicated Australian gift makers have uh, put castle gifts out there. But, yeah. but I've never seen one in the wild though. True, I've never seen one in the wild either. But I've just found Telemi's dreaming, so you can you can bet that I'm gonna be busting those out to celebrate Australia Day. And the thing is, too, that <laughs> we say that we you don't we don't see any of these gifts or memes in the wild, but you will see people post comments and they'll say Telemi's dreaming, or that's going straight to the pool room. Yeah, that's or, it. Or, or it's about the vibe, you know. That yeah. <laughs> you know th- that gets used, so it does in the sense that. You know, it's the way we talk. It's 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 in our phrase book now. Interesting that you mentioned that. I've got a piece of useless trivia here that in January 2011, the Bonnie Doon house was listed for sale and the real estate agent reported that many people called and after requesting the vendor's asking price, <laughs> replied with, tell him he's dreaming. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's just great Australian <laughs> trolling right there. It is. The um that yeah. house sold. I think that the house um next to the airport sold yeah. only last year or the year before. Um, interesting to see whether that ever pops up if it remains as it is. You know, I like, think there was a couple. Uh, like, is it going to get heritage news- listed? Yeah, I think there was a couple of stories about it being like knocked down or something. But oh objecting. shit, really? Okay. Yeah, like basically what happened in the movie happened. <laughs> but with, oh, the it airport wasn't, like, bought it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the owners of the house protesting, but the public saying, no, that house is like iconic. So, yeah. yeah it's not a house, it's a home. <laughs> exactly. It the is. The man's home is his castle. It, like, it, in, if you think about uh, buildings in Australian mm-hmm. films that are iconic, it's harder to, th- I'm hard pressed to think of something more iconic than the house in the castle. No, nothing. I can't think of. Anything. Not that I'm like an aficionado of Australian film, but all I can think of I, is the is the dish in the dish. <laughs> but you know that yeah. serves that's a, iconic a, a historical function. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, do you think you could make the castle in 2020, and what would that version look like? It, I think you could remake it. It would lose a certain amount of charm because. Mm as we've said, so much of the charm of it is that it, how it was made, how everyone looks in it, you know, it being kind of dated when it was made even. Yeah. I think if it was made today, um, the Kerrigans would probably have like crowdfunding would be a, a subplot. Like there'd be a Kickstarter for them to save their home or fund their legal fees or something. Yeah, I think, I think I skipped a question of how would smartphones and social media change the well, movie, but we I, can roll that into this. Yeah, because I, I think um, I think that's a really big thing about it too. The other thing is too that the the story, the Kerrigan story, makes it to the news at the very end. There's media mm-hmm. attention on it. Then yeah. I think in 2020 there would be this social media kind of buzz around yeah. it. It would get picked up somewhere. They'd get a Kickstarter. It would be a saga through the media throughout whereas this is just like a quiet battle in you know in 1997 in 2020 to be far, a far more public thing because we just the media tends to shine a light on this stuff a lot more um i think it could be remade i think the story 
is still so relevant. And I mm. think, um, you know, you've only got to look at the... When he gives his, his indigenous speech where he talks about, now I know how the Aborigines felt, <laughs> which is kind of weirdly, ironically funny, but it also has a really incredibly poignant point to it. Um, you know, the people in this country have got to stop stealing other people's land, he basically says. Uh, you know, I think, you know, that is still really topical. And mm. that element of it, the small man takes on the bureaucracy element of it. All of the themes in the film are still so acutely relevant today. Um, you could yeah. theoretically remake the film. Would it have the same charm and the same humor to it? No. Would it have the same cultural cachet to it and the same influence on society that it had no definitely not you're you're remaking australia's citizen kane here yeah that's it i think it would be like a netflix movie if it happened i could see that happening and it would be like you said yeah rolling coverage on social media there'd be like a change.org petition that does nothing there'd be facebook posts that go viral you know, maybe like a, uh, a Periscope or a, a Facebook Live video of these people are trying to kick me out of my house. Hasht- get a bit hashtag, more hashtag save Kerrigan's castle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff would, you know, and I don't know if it'd make, it wouldn't make the film any better or mm. there's probably some scope for jokes in it or whatever, but it's... It's just how that story would be told today. I mean, it's no avoiding it. And I think the film probably works better perhaps because it isn't in this era, like without all that kind of crap going on, without mobile phones and social media and yeah. the, the the churn of the 24-hour media cycle. I think that isolates the characters a bit more so they feel like mm-hmm. they're on their own. And I think that's what really makes it such a David versus Goliath story. Yeah, can't argue with that. Matt, it's time for the Steve Buscemi Spark Plug Award. <laughs> the, sorry, the what? <laughs> Steve Buscemi. A real spark plug. Okay. You know how Steve Buscemi pops up in all these 90s movies? Yeah, yeah. He's never actually won this award. He's had a few chances, but he'll win it one day. So the nominees are Bud Tingwell for his appearance. He's probably in the movie a little bit too much to be the spark plug. So uh, we're looking for a cameo kind of... Yeah, someone that comes in, they light it up, and then that's but, it. Yeah, okay. But Tingwell's only in like the last probably 20 minutes, though. Yeah, he, yeah, you're right. But he does come in earlier as well for that, yep. where they meet. Uh, Konstantinos Kilius, who plays Farouk. Yeah. I think you mentioned he was Lebanese mm-hmm. in the film. He makes a great joke, joke about dropping bombs. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was cold. Um, did you know that he's a magistrate? Really? Yeah, he, wow. like I found and I googled his name for some reason, <laughs> and uh, it came up with an article from like one or two years ago saying like the three new magistrates have been named, and one of them is the guy from the castle who knows a thing or two about legal disputes. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! <laughs> so he's been a barrister for like twenty years. So awesome. good on him. That's yeah. great. Uh, the only other one I had was Eric Banner, and I think that these three are the ones that are worth talking about who do you think steals the show the most can of I, these three can i throw in you can yes tyriel mora is that how you say his name he plays dennis denudo oh yeah is he yeah. too prominent in it because i he's just fantastic gotta... but i think he's probably in it too much he's probably got more lines than steve and like the mum 
probably probably i i just Sal. every time yeah. he's he's fighting with his photocopier i think is the, fantastic the funniest bit in the movie for me yeah i love that just... because like i just did an office space episode and it's like <laughs> giving me these flash flashes of like <laughs> smashing the photocopier and this movie came out before office space so i give him credit for tapping into that Oh, well, just, you know, swearing at, at office machinery is just yeah. transcends countries. <laughs> um, look, I, I have a real soft, soft spot for him because he was in Frontline as well hmm. um, as uh, Martin D'Astasio, I think his name was, um, who was one of the reporters uh, and he was great in that and he was great in this and he just never, he just kind of doesn't pop up in enough stuff. So, I kind of want to give it him, but I think it's got to be Eric Banner, doesn't it? Yeah. He he makes me laugh every time he's on the screen. Like when he's talking about kickboxing, you know, the, <laughs> and the he's value totally, he's for getting, money is second to none. <laughs> and he's getting his wife to hold the kickback. No, hold it, hold it still, hold it still. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, he, he steals every moment that he's in. Um, yeah. I, I, I do love Bud Tingwell. Seeing him in this really made me sad because he was one of those Aussie actors who just popped up in anything. And the D generation who became Working Dog had a real love of Bud Tingwell and they used to get him to pop up on The Late Show. Um, and even though he was this esteemed Aussie actor, he would always come in and be on their just low low mm. humour undergrad show and he'd be in the <laughs> sketches of Charlie the Wonder Dog or whatever. And, you know, he was obviously just a, a great guy and I, and I love his performance in this because... Like I said before, it feels like he's the only one who is acting like a a normal person in it to a certain extent. But I think, yeah, I think your spark plug's got to be, it's got to be Eric Banner probably. All right. Congratulations, Eric. Another award. (laughs) (laughs) So is there one, is there one more question? There's one more question. Is the castle still a good movie? It's, it's still a great movie. And I, I'm on board for the argument that it's the greatest Australian film of all time. Because I think because it's the most Australian film and it's not trying to be, you know, it's not trying to be Crocodile Dundee or Steve it's Irwin. It's above its weight, yeah. Yeah, it's not trying to be what other people think Australian is, I think, more to the point. Yeah. But it's definitely it, the most Australian film. It's just so quintessentially so, Aussie without yeah. trying to be. Yeah. Um, and it just does it in such a, a an affectionate kind of way. Like it's not it's not being mean-spirited about who these people are. The, the 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 writers the script really admires the good traits of these people and it pokes fun at them but it it, it admires its characters and it admires what it is about them that makes them really Aussie in the end yeah and it's not done in a cringy way like Kath and Kim or something more along those lines that hams it up even more it's, yeah, there's no it's, cultural cringe in it yeah. I didn't. I am someone that maybe steers away from that type of humor generally because yeah, it does make me cringe. But this film, it, it feels authentic. You mentioned how they were turning it up a little bit. I guess so. But we know people like you could pick these people up, pop them in the community, and people wouldn't bat an eyelid. Like there's so many people like this, especially in country towns. Absolutely. And yeah. even though it's dialed up, it's dialed up for comedic effect, but it's still not dialed up more than people I've met. Like, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> there, there are people who are more, more than that. Yeah. They are so much more than Daryl <laughs> Kerrigan. It's, 
it's funny because it's true. <laughs> they like yeah. they could have they could have gone even further over the top, and I think that's there is a certain level of restraint as much as it is mm. really everyone is kind of overacting a little bit or everything is sort of dialed up to 11 they could have gone much further and they could have made it a broader kind of comedy um gone more larrikin more ocker but they didn't yeah. and that's kind of impressive too yeah i echo that i think i enjoyed it more watching it yesterday than i ever have and i think that to me says it's still a good movie i think being older and having more life experiences and knowing more personalities that these characters remind me of just makes me enjoy it even more so if you're yeah. out there as an american and or from wherever and for some reason you've listened to this before watching the movie <laughs> i don't know why you would go and watch the movie it's great if you watched it as a kid and or as a younger person and haven't seen it for a long time go and watch it again it's fantastic and it's on stan streaming now i i uh rented it through youtube there you go. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> we don't have a video store anymore. Sad days. In it would have been, been nice to have rented it again from the same video store I rented it from in 1998, but uh, yeah. it wasn't to be. Alas. Well, thanks, Matt. It's been great celebrating this piece of Australiana with you. Thanks, Jono. Happy Australia Day. Yeah, you too. Happy Survival and, uh, Day. <laughs> yeah. I know just how they feel. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. Uh, we honestly don't we, know. We don't, we don't know. We no. don't. <laughs> of course, you can leave iTunes reviews uh, if you want to help out this podcast. Spread the word. Spread the good word about Comedy Rewind. We want to thank our eight-bit collective uh, Patreon producers for making the show happen. You can uh, check out Matt's movie reviews over at Movies Ate My Life. Do I have a web address? I thought you were giving me a URL, but that's okay. The the 8 is a number 8, just so you know. Yeah, moviesatemylife.blogspot.com. There you go. And also check out uh, Can You Believe It on all good streaming and podcast platforms. When you're not listening to all the uh, 8-bit podcasts, of course. That's it. Try not to laugh. It's a great podcast. Uh, and of course, I've got my new book released now, uh, The Maven Effect, sequel to The Spy and the Maven. So if you're yet to check that out, head over to gumroad.com slash Jono himself. That's where you'll find all the different versions of my novels. And you can catch us on social media. Let us know what you thought of the castle and this episode. Matt is at Dr. Matt Neal. I'm at Jono himself. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us on Comedy Rewind. Be kind. <laughs>